the rest of you can turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. We have a few among us who can remember a, take, a takeover that took over. A takeover, a takeover that took over. Back in their day. It was, it was a dramatic takeover. It took over this country, changed the whole country. And in a matter of years, the whole country was different. It was the kingdom of electricity. There's a few among us who remember not being able to have electric lights in their houses, not being able to, you know, having to go to the, the outhouse, right? And especially in the rural communities, it was kind of this, uh, do we want this, this takeover to happen? I mean, some of them resisted the takeover, right? They were like, ah, I'm not sure if this is the best move to make. Now, hindsight for us, like looking back on it, we're like, of course it was the best move to make. I mean, who wants to walk outside, have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, in the middle of December in Iowa, right? We're able to flip on the lights and go, right? But at the time, it seemed like a mildly threatening takeover. This morning, we're going to be talking about different kingdoms that are set up. And they're not always kingdoms based on geography. They're usually kingdoms of the heart. Kingdoms that we, where we have certain rules we play by in order to win the games that we have set up for ourselves. Certain laws that we follow in order that, so that we think that we can be safe. Certain reasons we do why we do because we want certain things to happen and we believe that in our kingdoms... These rules make sense. But as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning, I'm reminded of Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, verse 33, where he says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of, of flour until it was all leavened. That is, God has a kingdom that he is setting up. Again, it's not always marked by geographical boundaries. But it is a matter of the heart. And as we look this morning, we're going to say, see ways that the God's kingdom in his establishment of it is resisted and how that creates destruction and havoc and how things play out. So I want to look at ways to resist God's kingdom and the power plays that we use to do that as we look at David's kingdom being set up here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. So follow along as I read. 2 Samuel chapter 2, right? David's re- received news that Saul is dead. And so it says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into the, any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So again, David's demonstrating good kingship, asking God, God, you're the ultimate king of my life and the nation. Where should I go? He says, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So again, Saul is dead, right? 
not only is Saul dead, but the nation of Israel is in disarray because basically the Philistines took over the central part of Israel, splitting the nation in half. And so, so the nation is disarray, and Judah's like, well, we've got a king, it's David. And they set up David as king. And the nation knew that the nation wasn't blind to what had taken place over the last few years. They knew that David had been anointed king by, by Samuel. They knew the promises that, David, that God had made to David to make him king. But they don't respond to that initially. In fact, notice what happens. Uh, before we get there, it says, when, da- when they told David it was the men of J- Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David's kind of making this 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 overture in a sense. He's like, hey, thanks for taking care of Saul. Thanks for respecting him. Thanks for uh, rescuing his dead body out of respect for him and what he did for you. I'm glad you did that. And I, I, I want to show goodness to you because you did that. Uh, and uh, hey, yes, I'm also king over Judah at least. But they don't respond to that. Notice instead their response. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin, all Israel. So Abner, who knows the promises of God, who knows what had been promised to David, instead goes and finds Ishbosheth, one of Saul's youngest sons, and says, I'm going to make you king. And he does it in Mahanaim. Mahanaim would have been across the river, the Jordan River, on the other side. In fact, it's, if you think of Hebron as south, south, it's north, and it's as far away as possible, both from the Philistines as well as from David. Okay. And he sets him up as king in, in, in a competing kingdom to David's kingdom. You say, well, why would Abner do that if he knew these, if he knew these promises to David? Let me ask you a question. Why do we set up our kingdoms when we know God is going to rule everything and does rule everything, right? We, we like to rule our households a certain way. We like, we like, you know, I know myself, like I know, I wish my kids would think that I'm the fount of all wisdom. And when I make a pronouncement that they would just say, yes, Father, you are a wise Father. You are gracious to give us such wisdom, Father, and we will obey you immediately because you are so wise, you know? I wish my wife would do the same thing. Oh, husband, you are so wise. I cannot believe the, the wisdom coming out of your mouth. I, I, will, I, will, I just want to lift you up as so wise and, and follow what you say, but it doesn't happen, right? Why? Partially because I'm not the fount of all wisdom. You know, COVID, if anything, taught me that, right? It's, it's always it's like, you know what? If you think you're wise, go through COVID and realize, oh, nope, you're not that wise, can't figure everything out. You don't know how to handle everything. And you, and you have to step back from that and be like, okay, oh, if I'm not the fount of all wisdom, why do I think I need to be seen as the fount of all wisdom? Because I'm setting up my own kingdom. 
I want my house to be ruled the way I want it to be ruled, to show off how great I am, right? Abner's no different. He's the commander of Saul's army, and he just suffered a great defeat, but he doesn't want to be like, you know what, I'm not the founder of all, of all victories. He wants to be like, no, I'm the most important guy here, and I'm going to find somebody who's going to keep me as commander so that I can keep my place and my power and my recognition. Don't we do the same thing? We set up, and that point number one is we set up alternatives to God's kingdom, even though this only ends up in death. God is the source of life. He's the source of love. He's the source of hope. And when we set up alternatives to his kingdom, we're just setting up kingdoms of death and destruction. But we do it anyway because we love control rather than surrender. Do you have a kingdom of your home? Let me ask you, just think about what what saves you in your home? What, what delivers you in your home? What is, this, what is the game you're playing in your home where you're like, if this would just happen, then my home would be perfect, you know? Maybe it's having everything in order. You got everything in order, then it's good. Or maybe it's just the escape plan you have, you know? As long as I can get away from all the chaos, then I'm good. What about the kingdom of your career? What saves you in your job? You know, is it the ability to advance? Or maybe it's the, you're, you're on social media and it's the number of likes that you can get and keeping that hap- going up. People, more and more people following you. There is even kingdoms of your church Third John references that with Demetrius, right? Someone who, who's like, I'm going to rule this church at least, and I'm going to say who, who's welcome and who's not. I'm going to say who's accepted and who's not. And even in churches, we can set up our kingdoms rather than be under God's kingdom and be thinking about this is what is acceptable to me in my church rather than thinking what does God want in his church And unfortunately, that's what Abner does here. He sets up an alternative kingdom to David's kingdom, even though he knows the promises of God. And unfortunately, again, we're not much different. And that's why Jesus had to come. And that's why he said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're hoping for control. We're hoping for safety. We're hoping for security. We're hoping for comfort. We're hoping for love. And that comes primarily through the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But when we don't get it in the way that we think we should, we set up our own kingdoms. Do you know the kingdoms you have in your heart? Maybe it's a kingdom of comfort. I've just got to have things the way I want them. Maybe it's a kingdom of pleasure. I've got to have this. I've got to have this relationship or, or this experience or this. And if I don't have it, you're setting up a kingdom of death. 
you're setting up a kingdom of destruction. And we'll see that play out here as we go along. So Abner sets up Ishbosheth as king. It says, The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So again, Mahanaim is a, is a long way away, but they, they, they basically launched an attack. They're like, we're going to, we don't have Judah. We've got all the other tribes. We're going to get Judah to be involved too. And they set out an, an attack and they get to Gibeon, which is down near Hebron. And they sit down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. Oh, they're going to have a competition. No, it's, it's a battle to the death is the point. Again, it's just kind of like with David and Goliath, they often would send out their, their best and their, their champions to see who would win. And notice what happens here. It says, Job said, let them arise. And they arose and passed over by number 12 from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. All, tw- all 24 of them die at once. And that just starts the battle off. It doesn't solve the war. Therefore, the place was called Helka Hazurim which is at Gibeon, and the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? So obviously you get the sense that that the servants of Saul and Abner are, are, are being pursued. They're being defeated. But Asal's not concerned with that. He's concerned only with killing Abner. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asal would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asal, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then I could, could, could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused. This is the problem with civil wars, Right? is you're fighting brothers, you're fighting people you know. And, uh, and Abner's like, I don't want to kill you because I'm, I know your brother, you know. But Asa wouldn't, refu- wouldn't back down. So it says, therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. So the spear came out at his back and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asa had fallen and died stood still. So you get the impression here that Abner's, you know, a mountain of a man. He's strong. He's capable. He's not afraid of killing someone, and he, d- he can do it very efficiently. And that's one of the reasons why he wants to maintain his power in his kingdom. But Joab and Ashab- Abishai pursued Abner, and as the, as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, where, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Amr called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will, you, will it be before you tell your brothers to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. 
And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning, and they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. See, this is kind of this first battle. Abner goes on the offensive. It doesn't work out. And they go back. Notice how chapter 3, verse 1 summarizes that There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Ammonon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, the sixth, Ethraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So he has more than two wives now, and he has more sons. He has... Um, and we'll get to we'll talk about that next week. But while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Saul's kingdom is shrinking. Ishbosheth's kingdom is shrinking. It's getting weaker and weaker. But Abner is, is trying to put himself more and more in power in the house of Saul. It says, Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog of am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. And so not only do we set up alternatives to God's kingdom, we also use power plays to resist God's kingdom. We use power plays to resist God's kingdom. Here's Abner, and he's, the, the, the situation is closing in on him, and yet he's like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into this concubine of Saul, which is in a sense saying, I, sh- I could be king. I could take over as king. It's, that's exactly what it meant in those days. It reminds me of... Uh, something that happened back in the 2000s. Allen Iverson was, uh, he was the, for the NBA, he was the scoring leader. He was a short guy, but he was the scoring leader in the NBA for a couple of years there. And he had missed a couple of practices. And news got out to the media, and they started asking him about practice and why he was missing practices. And he, he goes on, you can see the clip if you go on YouTube, he goes on and on for several minutes about, hey, we're not talking about a game, we're talking about practice. You're not talking about how much I, I've produced in the games and how much I've scored and how much I, what I'm doing in those games. You're talking about practice. And he goes on and on about, about practice. And that's what I feel like here. He's like, Abner's like, you're not talking about the fact that I'm fighting for us and I'm risking my life and I'm going off. You're talking about a woman. You're, you're not talking about the ways that I fight for you and I've protected you from David and I haven't turned you over to David. You're talking about a woman. And he just goes off on this, this power play that he has where he's just like, you, you can't, you're not getting it. But the problem was, it was just a power play. He just wanted what he wanted and he wanted to be bigger in the situation where he was at. And when we set up alternatives to God's kingdom, we have to use power plays because we're, our kingdoms shrink. 
they fall apart. And we use things like guilt trips, like, how could you do that to me? How could you say that about me? What what are you thinking? And we use guilt trips to use power plays to, to keep our kingdoms intact. We shame others because we feel like you're, you're, you didn't help out, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. In order to lift ourselves up. Guilt trips, power plays, shaming, they're all ways to maintain our kingdom. You realize Jesus never did power plays, right? Jesus never guilted his disciples. He never guilted the crowds into following him. He's like, you got to, up front, you got to understand, to follow me, it takes taking up your cross and following me. Understand what it means. In fact, you see that example most clearly with the example of, of Paul, where Paul is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about how God set, set him up in his kingdom. He says, So to keep me from being coming conceited, because he had seen some visions of heaven and, and seen these great things of God, says to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Do you see the difference in the kingdoms? When you set up your own alternative kingdom, you have to use power plays. You use guilt trips and manipulation in order to keep your kingdom going the way you want. But Paul here says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I feel like I can't do it all, that's when I know that I'm right where God wants me to be. And too often, what we do is we push, we push these signs of God's kingdoms because, in, in a sense, God's kingdom is breaking into us, not on these great victories and not on these great things that happen in our lives. God's kingdom breaks into our lives when we feel weakest, when we feel vulnerable, when we feel like, I can't handle this. When we feel like, you know what, I'm not sure what to do here. Or I, I feel like I've got this difficult situation. I wish it would just go away. That's actually God stepping into your life and saying, you know what, I want you to know my power. I want you to know my presence. I want you to know my comfort. I want you to know my help. And we're like, get it out of my life, get it out of my life, get it out of my life. And God's like, no, this is me. Don't you see? This is me in your life. This is me coming into your life. And though you think you're strong, you're actually weak. And when you realize you're weak, then you can be strong because you can depend on me. You can walk with me. You can follow me. Because... I have set up my king on my holy hill, and he is going to rule and reign. James puts it this way, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Oh, so many times 
We want to kick the problems out of our lives. We want our kingdoms to have no problems at all. When God's like, let me bring in and let you see my power in the problems you're facing. Let me see my, my love in the, in, the power, in the problems you're facing. Let me see my mercy in the problems you're facing. Abner here uses power plays. And it doesn't work. And he realizes it's not going to work. And so he decides to give in. For notice verse 8. Uh, sorry, verse 9. God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne over da- of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Again, he references, do not, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. He's like, you know what? If I can't accomplish it in my own strength, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally exceed to what God's plan is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the Savior here. I'm going to be this one that's going to set up God's kingdom. He still hasn't got it, but he's headed in the right direction in a sense. Verse 11 says, And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Again, Abner's the power behind the throne. And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over Israel, all Israel to you. And, and uh, David says, That's fine, but I want my wife, Michael. You know, Michael, who was taken from him by when he, David had to flee from Saul. And he puts, again, he, in a sense, he puts Abner in his place by saying, Ishbosheth, you know, and Ishbosheth accedes to that request. Because again, David's getting stronger. And it says, verse 17, Abner confirmed with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Then now bring it about. And so Abner gets Israel basically behind this. Again, he's the power behind this unification. And he meets with David and they make peace. Notice verse 22, though. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Then Joab and all the Israel army that was with him came, and it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or holds a spindle who falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier, and they, followed, they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, as one falls before the wicked you have fallen. 
and all the people kept wept over him again. And the people all, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day, and David swore, saying, God, do, do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or eat anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king had did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his weakness. The last point I want to make here is just that we, in, in, in resisting God's kingdom, we resist God's peaceful takeovers. We resist God's peaceful takeovers. You see, ultimately David's goal here is the unification of the kingdom. If you're, if you're kind of reading this story, you're like, David, I thought you were king. David, I thought you were the one to unite the people. David, I thought you were supposed to be the leader. You know, lead. Why aren't you leading here? It's all about Abner and Joab and all this stuff. Why aren't you doing this? And sometimes that's the way we kind of think of God as well. We're like, God, if, you, if you, this is all your world, why aren't you doing anything about it? What's going on? Why, why are all these bad things happening? Why, are you, why don't you take over and do something about it? But the, the reason is, is because God wants to do a peaceful takeover. He's not interested in just destroying everything. He's actually interested in winning over his enemies. That's God's goal, is to win over his enemies. And he doesn't do that by wiping them out. And so here you see David ultimately gets Abner and Israel to surrender and to say, yes, we want you to be king over us. But sometimes as Christians, when we have personal issues with people that are in the, in, against God, and, and we're like, God, you can't save this guy. He's too terrible. God, you can't, can't do this to this group of people. They're too evil. How could you want to rescue them as well as me? And we forget that we were enemies of God too, and he rescued us. And when we resist God's kingdom, it's not always that we set up an alternative to God's kingdom. It's that we resist the ways God is working in the world, that God is actually drawing people to himself. You realize that God is working in, in many difficult situations, people, people that you would be like, you would be willing to write off and say, there's no hope for them, there's no hope for them, and, but God is a God of hope. God is a God who rescues people. But Joab didn't see that. He just like, this is a, this is a ploy by Abner to finally take you out somehow. I don't want it to happen. And I've got a personal issue with, with Abner because he killed my brother, so I'm going to take him out. Abner wasn't the problem, nor was Ishbosheth. The problem is always our hearts. Are we willing to let God rule or do we want to rule? That is always the key issue. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. I ran across this quote this week. Idolatry is committed not merely by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils. 
by making men afraid of war or alcohol or economic law when they should be afraid of spiritual corruption and cowardice. He wrote that in 1909, okay? Idolatry doesn't happen when you, only when you set up your own kingdoms. It's also when you set up your own devils, the things you're afraid of. You're like, this can't possibly be good. We can't let this happen. God couldn't let anything good happen from this. We've got to stop this by any means possible. God's still on his throne. And if he's doing a peaceful takeover, he's doing a peaceful takeover. And so we need to be careful not to resist God's kingdom when he's working in someone's heart, he's working in someone's life, and you're like, but I don't think this, I don't think I could trust this person. I don't think God could work in this person. I don't think God could work in this situation. When God is the almighty God, he can take care of any situation and turn it to good. So we can resist God's kingdom by setting up alternatives, by doing power plays, by resisting God's peaceful takeovers, but in the end, it's fruitless. God's promises always outlast human power plays. God's promises always outlast human power plays. Abner wanted his own kingdom. It didn't last. God is in control. I've read the end of the book. He wins, right? In fact, it says in Revelation verse 21, verse 6, it says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the Thursday I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God is going to set up his kingdom. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus came, and he set up permanently God's kingdom. Jesus is God's king. And though all the nations rage, and, all, and although our hearts rage, and we do power plays, and we try to keep our lives the way we want them to be, God always wins. God always wins. So the only thing that we can do is surrender. We can say, God, you win. You're in charge. You're great. I want you to rule my life. I want you to rule the world. And that happens when we turn to Jesus, the King of Kings, and he says, believe in me. I will forgive you and make you my child. 
John 3.16 says it clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you done that? Have you believed in the son? Is he your king? And if he is, whose kingdom are you serving? Because even if he's your king, you can set up... (laughs) So we like, I'm going to hold on to this pocket here, or I want this for my life. Whose kingdom are you serving? In your home, are you thinking about God's kingdom or your own? At work, are you thinking about God's kingdom or your own? You know what? We can often miss God's kingdom. We can ignore the times when he's breaking in and he's putting obstacles and weaknesses and difficulties in and we can be like, I just need to push those out, get what I want out of life because that's how I'm going to have a great life rather than thinking, you know what? Here's a chance for me to experience God's kingdom at work. Here's a chance for me to walk in weakness and dependence. Here's a chance for me to to ask for forgiveness and, and to work and say, God be glorified through this. Not me, but God be glorified through this. Whose kingdom are you serving? Abner resisted God's kingdom. In the end, it only led to death. In fact, the next chapter talks about how based after that, two men go to, go to Ishbosheth, kill him at night, take his kill, actually, kill him actually during the day, and take his head and take it to David. And David's like, I didn't do it for the guy that brought me Saul's head. Why would I do it for the guy that brings me, guys that bring me Ishbosheth's head? You guys are dead too. <laughs> because God's king is not interested in destruction. He's interested in making peace. And that's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Are you serving his kingdom? Are you making peace? Or are you using power plays? Let us all seek to glorify the one who died for us, who gave his life to make peace with God. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to miss your kingdom sometimes. We look around us and we see problems and difficulties and think those aren't God's kingdom, when actually that's where you show up the best and the most and the clearest is when we walk in dependence on you. When we walk in trust with you. As Paul put it, when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord, help us to walk serving your kingdom. Not setting up alternatives, not using power plays, not even resisting your peaceful takeovers in others' lives. Because you are at work in our city. You have people you love. You're working with even today, drawing them to yourself. People that we would say that's hopeless, that there's no hope for them, and that you are at work in their lives. Help us not to resist those. Help us not to be stumbling blocks to those, but instead to rejoice when you create peace. Lord, you are God. There is no other. Your kingdom will rule and reign. Lord, we say, come quickly. And in the meantime, 
Help us to reflect your rule and reign in our lives, to your glory and our good, in your son's name. Amen.